It's fantastic to have um, everyone on board today. Kia ora katoa. It is Friday the August the 6th. It's been a cracker of a week for all of you who've been reading the kaka. We've had our most successful week ever in terms of reads of the emails and downloads of the, the little mono podcasts that I do with them. And last week, Hoon with Peter was very successful with over 400 downloads, which I'm... Wow. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. No, it's great. And P Peter has arranged a fantastic lineup for us today, based off his his regular spin-off email on the, the political events of the uh, week around the world. What did, what did you want to start off with this week, uh, Peter? Well, in, in my in my bulletin, I started with Lebanon and Beirut because, you know, you will all remember that extraordinary footage of the several thousand tons of ammonium nitrate exploding along with fireworks and everything else in the Beirut docks. And I, and I think that, you know, we might get a bit of compassion fatigue and we might get a bit of a bit of a sense that, you know, the Middle East is always in trouble. But, you know, Beirut is one of the most beautiful, well, you know, was for many years the most beautiful city in the Middle East. I've been there several times. It is, it, you know, it, it has an extraordinary history through, you know, the Arab, you know, through the Islamic era, the Arab era, through the Crusades. You know, everybody's marched through it and marched out the other side and left their historic and religious legacy behind. And, and what's happening there now is just incredibly sad. I mean, there's, there's, you know, this is a place that used to be one of the great financial centers, one of the great communication centers of the Middle East, I mean, both under French rule and under independence. And of course, it went under a very dark couple of decades of, of Syrian control or Syrian, Syrian influence. And now what you've got is this absolutely extraordinary stasis where Hariri, the president, has gone. He's the one, if you might remember, that Mohammed bin Salman effectively held hostage and forced to resign while in Saudi Arabia, which was, was a great story a couple of years ago and you've just got this extraordinary sort of inability of the elaborate system of the ruling political class that is unable to get anywhere because you've got this system where you know the speaker of the house is one well it has to be one religion the president the president has to be another religion and it's very hard to bring in an effective kind of technocratic government to solve a problem as big as has been left with this with this explosion and it just means that the place slides into corruption, slides into being a being essentially a failed state. And I, I in this piece in this in the spin-off or the spin-off, I um, called out a couple of pieces by people who and oddly both my friends, uh, Mark Chulov from the from the who's the Middle East correspondent of Guardian who's there. And he said that, you know, Lebanon just remains paralyzed and anguished. You know, nobody's been held accountable. People are having to, you know, the power constant power cuts, it corruption has moved in you know, the politicians are okay. And, you know, there was a hope, I don't know whether you remember that um, Emmanuel Macron went went to Beirut after the explosion, you know, essentially also not, you know, he was, France was the colonial power, but it was also a gesture of, of solidarity. And, and people hoped that there might be a kind of redemptive spirit, that there would be enough of a shake-up amongst the political class in, in, in Lebanon, but particularly in, in the city of Beirut, to really take this on and understand that the destruction of one of the great, or large-scale destruction of one of the great cities in civilization anywhere, was a time to sort of look for help, to redeem themselves from the disaster. But, you know, everybody is split between, you know, the, the Maronites, the Hezbollah, you know, runs most of, you know, much of, much of Beirut and is heavily under Iranian influence. And then you've just got a sort of bunch of quite greedy, effectively warlords, or at least it, it, it may well descend into warlords. Because when, when I was first a baby reporter, Bernard, um, 
the Lebanese civil war was in was in full flight. And, you know, you had an urban, you know, sophisticated urban environment being completely destroyed for nearly 15 years by people fighting over apartment blocks and fighting over the streets of apartment blocks. And, 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 and Lebanon recovered very successfully of this, particularly under a billionaire prime minister called Rafak al-Hariri, who had made his money as a, as a builder, builder and developer in Saudi Arabia. And he really gutted the center of Beirut and rebuilt it sometimes in rather crass ways. But most of that rebuilding the Corniche, the area around the port has been, if not destroyed, then certainly seriously damaged by this explosion. So it's kind of depressing because, you know, these are sophisticated urban people who deserve, who deserve better than they're getting from their politicians. What it says, though, is that when you have a, a failed state, effectively, where you don't have much cohesion or resilience, and then you have a shock, in fact, a double shock, because you have, we're having COVID at exactly the same time, then that makes it so hard to deal with, with crisis. Um, the stresses that you're already under seem to tear everything apart right. all over again. And this goes to, goes to show you how much we take for granted, I suppose, not so much in that we, you know, we're not having accidental explosions, but when the pressure comes on, you've got some resilience in your fabric of your society, which can absorb a few things. This may be, it may be some resilience. Yes, uh, I, I think also this, that, you know, when you it's this betrayal. It's the betray, I mean, I don't. I actually hate that phrase, political class, but it sort of fits with this. It's, um, it's a betrayal of the proposition between the politicians and the public. It's because the politicians are so sectarian that they're really only looking after their own their own small group of supporters. They have no nationally cohesive uh, uh, approach. And Rafik Hariri was uh, was able, you know, with his billions, to suggest that everybody would would, would you know it, certainly everybody at the political trough would have a slice of a slice of something, and that kept it quiet for a while. But you know, this these explosives, these uh, well, it was fertilizer, but one one could argue that it was explosive. I mean, theoretically it was fertilizer, but as we all know, fertilizer can be a very powerful. Explosive. It was on its way to I think Tanzania. You know, it lay. Thousands of tons of lay on a on a ruined ship, which and it was then brought ashore as that ship started to sink. Now, it's arguable and it's highly likely, it would seem, that somebody thought it was possibly a handy idea for Hezbollah to have a couple of thousand tons of ammonium nitrate mm -hmm. nearby. So, you know, it, but again, we don't know. There's been no there's, there's no proper investigation other than incompetence. So, what else? The, the other, I mean, I actually did a very quiet sort of bulletin this week, Bernard, but. Uh, the other thing I thought we might talk about before we also look at interest rates and the various things in New Zealand is climate change. I and mean, we, we often mm, talk yeah. about this. We have had a really remarkable couple of weeks of, you know, the, the, the fires in the underground in Siberia that are releasing gigantic quantities of, of greenhouse gases. We had that story recently that the um, Brazilian rainforest, the Amazon, may be reversing from being a climate sink to a climate emitter. And then today is one of those stories that you just think, hang on a minute, which is the possibility that the, the Gulf Stream, which influences, you know, really everything from the, you know, from the Southern Atlantic up towards the UK and around and around Europe, may be failing. And this has always been, you know, it's, it's been suggested that this has been possible in the same way, and it's probably related, of course, to the same way that the jet stream has been disrupted or would appear to have been disrupted by the melting of uh, Arctic, Arctic ice. And so you've got these extraordinarily um, dangerous volatilities coming in things that have been really part of the mechanism of the climate. And the, the Guardian reported a story today that the um, new research has found that the, the Gulf Stream 
is now at its the, the currents in the Gulf Stream are their slowest for at least 1,600 years, Ooh. and that they may in fact shut down. Now, if you can imagine what that would do, let's think about the UK. I mean, the UK is, you know, if, if, the, if the warm stream from the Gulf Stream did not run up the eastern side of the, uh, western side rather of the UK, you would not, you know, you would be growing far less. You would not have the relatively warm temperatures around, the moderate temperatures around Ireland, Cornwall and so on. And it would just, you know, it, the, this, the consequences almost don't bear thinking about. And that really applies all the way up the, the, the western coast of Europe, up into Scandinavia and, and way beyond because these, you know, climate formations, climate factors flow all the way around the world, as we know. So I, I just think there's a, you know, we're getting to, there's just, it, it's hard to call tipping points. And yes, there's always been weather, but, you know, there's an awful lot going on. And you've got all these record storms, in, sorry, fires in Greece and in Turkey and, and, and really pretty much along that northern coast of the, of the Mediterranean. And we've uh, just gotten uh, news too that there's been a massive melting event on Greenland's ice sheet. Yep. Where, according to various reports, there was enough ice that melted in a single day last week to cover the whole of Florida in two inches of water. Mm. And uh, 9.37 billion tons of ice melting in a day. It's interesting on, on the sort of political uh, front around climate change. On Monday, we're going to get the latest report from the IPCC, mm. the uh, body of experts advising people um, just ahead of the Glasgow conference. And uh, it looks like they're going to, we haven't seen the details yet, but I see the Guardian is re reporting that uh, we're going to find out on Monday that the climate is heating much faster than we expected. That's consistent with some of these feedback loops that are and the, the tipping points that seem to be triggered. And that they're going to ask the leaders turning up at Glasgow in November to come up with, with much more aggressive reductions in uh, climate emissions to try and stop this runaway train that we're on. Because, of course, once you get past two, two and a half degrees, you can't stop it. And Yeah, uh, and I just I just cannot see this, Bernard. I don't see, I, I think it's very interesting. There's a, there's a, there is a strange parallel between this and perhaps COVID denialism and COVID anti-vaxxing. There's also that terrible problem that politicians tend to tend to handle, you know, expected short, unexpected short-term crises reasonably well, but it's extremely hard to handle these long-term crises, except that it's becoming, it would appear to be becoming a very short-term crisis as well, with this, you know, dramatic acceleration of the number of the number of extreme climate events. But it's really quite hard to get that to filter through to the political mm. environment. For example, here, the focus groups that are done by various groups with median voters, who seem to rule the country, is show that everyone says, yep, climate change, it's a real thing. We care about it. We want something to be done. But then you pose the next two or three questions, such as, would you be okay with a couple of lanes of the Auckland Harbour Bridge being mm. cordoned off with cyclists? Yeah. Or do you think we should spend $700 million on a second bridge for only cyclists? Or should we um, stop building um, new suburbs on the edge of town? And immediately mm. people say, oh, no, no, not, not that. Not me. Yeah, well, I think we, we, we have to find a way, Bernard. Maybe you and I should do a, do a particular podcast on climate and bring Dave Callaway, a friend of ours, in some way. Oh, yeah. If anybody wants to look at it, the Callaway Climate Report is quite good if you Google that. But I think one of the problems here, we don't look enough in New Zealand at mitigation as well. The, the, you know, the debate is all about, all about carbon reduction and so on, and that gets into this pointless kind of ute debate. But we're also going to have to do mitigation and, and adaptation. You know, the, 
this and and the, the storm in Westland Westport rather really really emphasised that. And I, I, there's a piece in that one of the great climate writers at the moment is a guy called Bill McKibben from the New Yorker, and and he has a piece out today. I mean, of course, it goes on for several thousand words, but it's really about two essential truths. One is that we already know how much the temperature is going to rise if we if we keep pumping greenhouses into the atmosphere. We know. You know, it's, it's very interesting that you should talk about the the inter, inter, intergovernmental report because you know of, often people say that you know journalists are just trying to scare us, but you know the intergovernmental uh, panel on climate change really is something like 600 of the world's most important climate scientists working together in a collaborative fashion, trying to give us the best evidence they possibly can and the best forecast they possibly can. And, and as Bill McKibben says in this, the doubling of the amount of greenhouse gas from the industrial revolution in the atmosphere would increase the Earth's temperature somewhere around three degrees. That's where on that's where we're on track to do right now. And you know the consequences of that, when we're supposed to be trying to keep it to one and a half, it, it shows you the scale of difficulties meeting that one and a half. But it also, you know, should cause us cause us some nervousness when you're getting you know, 49 degrees in Canada and the highest temperatures in a fire ever recorded, a bushfire ever recorded in Turkey. You know, there's some serious stuff going on and it's happening, you know, right around the world. Yeah. The, no, the other, um, sorry. You go. No, the other point that Bill McKibben makes in this piece in The New Yorker is that we, we, we know that those three degrees are coming. We know how much gas is going to cause it, but we do not know just how much damage those three degrees would cause. We don't know exactly what's going to happen to these knock-on effects. As you say, these these kind of pivotal tipping points, like the melting of some of the, some of the ice in Greenland, like this potential disruption to the to the uh, Gulf Stream, and I, and I think what's kind of interesting for this, and again it goes to that, you know, not to bring it all back to New Zealand, but there may be some extremely quick, it would appear, very very significant climate changes in large areas of of, of Europe in particular, it would seem. Yeah, and and also there's some suggestion that the Amazon. Is now an effective uh, carbon emitter yeah, as opposed absolutely. to a sink, um, because so much uh, forest has been cut down, and because there's a feedback loop in there. Great mm. question from Charles Hitt from our our watchers today, who asks, you know, can can we make people's views more collective on this? On this, you know, for example, could you get a, a lot more people to agree to the two lanes on the Harbour Bridge? What's interesting today, actually, without wanting to get too sort of short term and political about it, it looks like the government is going to back down on its plan to make to build a second bridge, especially for cyclists. Michael Wood, the transport minister, announced it in a bit of a hurry, it has to be said, mm. at the same time as announcing that he would be not going ahead with the, the big new southern motorway extension, Mill Road project and the blowback from the Mike Hosking crew in in Auckland was extreme and this is the thing to actually get over that you need leadership from people that that um, the, the largest part of the community find credible the prime minister has talked a good game about uh, it being a climate emergency but hasn't actually taken the big political risks and whenever there's been pushback has edged back and effectively it, it's very, it's really hard for uh, centrist politicians. For example, I was talking to a senior cabinet minister last week who acknowledged that the fastest way to deal with this is simply to reconfigure roads into cycling and pedestrian ways. And that trials had been done and they lasted about a week before there was a sort of outroar of outrage from commuters saying, how dare you take these roads off me? And um, mm. It's, mm. it's gonna be so hard 
politically. Well, what do you think, Bernard? The role. I, I, I also wonder what do you think the role of the media is in this? Because you know, the, the, one of the things that I'm, I, I work at Stuff at the moment, as you know, as a consultant, and I am impressed that the stuff that Stuff released a, a, a product that goes out with some of the newspapers called the Forever Project, which is an attempt to help people be less helpless, if you like, about climate change, to give them the good gen, to give them solutions-based approach as well. But you know, what do we need to do to try to give people the best possible information, including the doubt? So for example, I got my head bitten off in a job I used to have, where I said that we would not challenge the science of the IPCC on, on climate change because it was the most accurate information available. And I said, we would be science-led. Now, as with COVID, you also need to say what the doubt is or what the risks are or what the or what the modeling is, but you do not, you know, how do we how do we avoid the media just feeding conspiracy theories or feed or worse still, feeding ignorance and doubt? It's a tough one. I, I and if you've so. got an answer, could you tell me, please? <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, and I think stuff is doing a fantastic job of doing its best to explain the issues, to explore the um, pros and the cons of various different policies and to try and push the debate debate forward, really get some flavor and depth. And, and I have to say, so is the, the other major news company, NZME. They've got some great reporters there doing some, some excellent work. I, I must say, we see a lot less of it in the televisual media mm. here. And, other, than, uh, other than storms and crises. Yeah, yeah. And it would be great to somehow bring that to life. I'm not quite sure how you do that. I, I always think back to the, that great series in America, that uh, reality TV series, Teen Mom, where single-handedly a TV series managed to bring it, the attention of the people who needed to know it, i.e. the teen moms, about the, the complications mm, of interesting. it. it was, and, and I think there, there must be a way to sort of cut through the political noise and the culture wars and the tribal identifications to the people who aren't necessarily so political to, to get them to understand the, the potential risks and, yeah, it's funny. I find, I find, um, I find, uh, and this is going to sound very silly, possibly, but I find Country Calendar quite a good <laughs> antidote to this because, you know, although occasionally, you know, there'll be the person farming two or three bananas in uh, the Bay of Islands, and that becomes an entire story, but very, very often it's people with large-scale properties doing the right thing, doing regenerative farming, doing some astounding work with water runoff and so on. And and I know that's not exactly quite the same issue with climate change, but it is about the environment. And, and this, again, is where I think we need to, to, to have a stream that is about adaptation as well as, as, well as cutting, cutting emissions. You know, there's, there's, the, the economist has been very good on this, as, as you would expect, for an organisation that is driving capitalism. But, you know, capitalism is currently what's feeding us, so we can attack on me for being a neoliberal, if you like. That's all right. Speaking of, you know, territories for debate and the, the Overton window of what it is we can credibly talk about if we think we want to get elected, in America, mm. you know, that, that space for public debate around things like climate change and race and there's, uh, not to mention guns, is uh, incre incredibly poisoned at the moment. And you were pointing to an excellent Jane Meyer piece yeah, that's in the yeah. New Yorker around political funding of political parties. Well, there's a, there's a couple of things really in that, Bernard, and it is about the you know the 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 end of bipartisanism and so on. And you know, as so often, what happens in the states can happen to us. I mean, I think you see this too. With I, I found it quite interesting this week, Judith Collins talking about 
the people are saying argument, which, of course, we heard during the election from Jerry Brownlee, and I thought an absolutely extraordinarily dangerous way, which is not to say that that conversation doesn't need to have, but the whole, I don't really have an opinion, but this is what I'm hearing, is just so politically uh, barren as an idea. And so I will talk in a second about the Jane Mayer piece, because it is it is really interesting, and it shows the depth of the problem. But you've also got this week, and I, I, I hate to even talk about him, but Tucker Carlson, who's the leading, become the leading uh, voice on uh, Fox News, and who is pretty much barking mad when you see him. And he has this, he has one of those, so let me tell you a tiny story about this. Years ago, Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News, had a habit of he would turn the volume down on the television. And when he was watching somebody that he thought he might want to hire or see what the show was like. And unless the person was acting in such an, this presenter was acting in such a lunatic way that it made him turn the, turn the sound up, you know, he'd fired him. And if you look at Tucker Carlson with the, with the sound off, it looks like he's having a nervous breakdown about 98% of the time. It's a sort of particularly gormless and credulous look of the, which just says, you won't believe what these lefties are doing now. But Tucker Carlson is broadcasting this week from Hungary, from Budapest, you know, where he's on a kind of fascist holiday tour, talking about Viktor Orban as the defender of families and of, and, of, and who's got it right around refugees. You know, it might actually be more convenient if uh, Tucker Carlson went to Germany and saw that a million refugees uh, from Syria have been fully absorbed, you know, are now part of the German economy, offsetting the, you know, the aging population song. But no, he won't be doing that. He'll be going to a to a nasty bugger like like Victor Orban. So the, the 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 reason I mentioned Jane Mayer's story is that Jane is a is a, an esteemed gumshoe investigative journalist who who I know quite well, and she wrote a wonderful book about three years ago called Dark Money, and it was pretty much about the Koch brothers, who are one of the wealthiest private families in the United States and huge funders of GOP and of and of right wing politics. But what they've all what they and their ilk have been particularly good at is legislation. They will do, you know, leg- legislative preparation, and the same legislation will pop up in any number of the 50 states. And that's how they're doing this with conspiracy to limit people's rights to vote. You know, they're, 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 they present it as protecting the right to vote or protecting it from fraud. And, and we know that there is next to no evidence of any significant fraud. We know because Trump fired him that the electoral, the guy in charge of, of, of the electoral, electoral process you know, certified that there was no fraud, no significant fraud. But you know what they're doing is they, you know, this is deeply undermining of of the sort of basic roots of democracy. And what I think we sometimes forget is that it's about the demography of the United States. Is that grumpy old white men increase? And I say this as as a, sometimes I'm not really grumpy, but you know, as an old white. But it is, you know, this is a the the, the GOP is making absolutely no attempt to reach out and change, its, change itself. It is sticking to a kind of hard conservative um, mentality in which the only thing to do is then restrict the ability of your, of your opponents to actually vote, which is just a, an incredible sort of perversion of democracy, if you ask me. And, and this, this, this piece of Jane's just shows that this is not just some kind of trend. It is being driven by money by people who you know want a conservative agenda, support a conservative agenda, and and so there's a very strong racist element. Of, you know, they, they, it, it is. Sorry, there's an, lot, there's an awful lot of privilege to protect. That's and right. And understandable uh, nervousness. What's What's interesting about endowments that we all we all get is that there's an endowment effect, where people are willing to fight much harder to retain mm-hmm. what they have than to move on to some new position. Uh, That's right. Themselves and for everyone. But the endowments, 
in America that came from slavery and theft and the genocide of American Indians people. Yeah, Native Americans. Um, yep. We shouldn't forget forget ourselves. A absolutely. And I, I just what I, what I guess I wanted to to do by mentioning this piece was to just this is not accidental. It is not going to go away. It is really deep. And we have to think that this is, you know, as we're thinking about the reframing of the world and how long Biden might like, might last, what the Chinese position is. It's very interesting to me, this last couple of weeks, I've been looking at a lot of CGTN, the Chinese, the Chinese broadcaster. They absolutely love to turn around stories that show that American democracy is failing. You know, that is, that is part of the Chinese mantra. And so, you know, this all feeds into, it is just, you know, this week's TV story about, about Trump or about losing a particular seat. These are fundamental shifts that have the ability or the risk of really undermining American prestige worldwide. Yeah. Should we burn we should, we, Sorry, carry on. Just, just one thing before we move on. We shouldn't assume that we're immune from all of this as well. Some of our attendees today and some others will remember Dirty Politics, the book by Nikki Hager mm. that came out just before the 2014 election in which right-wing bloggers managed to really screw, screw the scrum of the debate in New Zealand for a few years, thanks to some help from the ninth floor of the Beehive. Mm. And for a while there, they were being paid money to smear people all over the place. There was a recent court case which confirmed a lot of this. And Nikki Hager's book, which I'd recommend to everyone as a good read, and quite a prescient read, actually, uh, really details the, uh, how the playbook was written in America. Yeah. And those on the extreme right, and there might be one or two on the extreme left, have uh, chosen to, you know, use that playbook and see what they can do here. Yeah, and I think also when you've got somebody like Judith Collins, who's um, not doing terribly well at the moment, and I, I, I imagine you might have some interesting things to say either next week or on this one about the National Party conference. They tend, they have a tendency to lash out. And I am no, you know, uh, I, I'm, I, oh, well, I, I probably am, but I, I try not to be just a sort of woolly liberal, but they're essentially stoking hatred. Now, let me, let me, let me say at the outset, I'm also really worried about the, the New Zealand hate speech legislation. I, don't, I think it's crazy to have hate speech legislation before you have effective protection of free speech or protection of uh, media rights, especially given New Zealand defamation laws. So I, I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan at the moment of the New Zealand hate speech laws, but these people are kind of embattled and they will p appeal to an embattled audience and there will be, you know, as we saw a little bit with that, with those farmers protests, there are people who like this message. Yeah, and for now, Judith Collins looks like she's going to survive. There's a conference going on in Auckland right now, in part because no one else wants the hospital pass. Mm. Uh, and uh, because... I had to I had to look up what a hospital pass was when I heard that used <laughs> when I came back to New Zealand. But yeah, I now know. Yeah, no, it's and so she's safe for now. But as she swings on and digs her fingernails in, she is increasingly trying to shore up her support on the right and to compete for voters that would normally be, vote, be voting national, but are now defecting to act. And mm. But it doesn't cover up the problem that the government's support is dropping as well. And we've had a winter of discontent with the poll support for Labour dropping from about 50 to about 40. And I think there's, um, there's movement there, but for the government, they can be uh, content for now. That, yeah, um, I think so, Bernard, that, to... it seems to me, I, I, we've talked again about this before, and we certainly talked about this one-to-one, -one, but the, there's a bit of a crisis of competence in the government as well, or you know, the confidence and their, 
their ability, you know, maybe even just Jacinda, Jacinda Ardern's personal extraordinary ability to go over the shoulders, go over the head of the media and straight to the public. I mean, Joe Moyer on the in newsroom wrote two excellent pieces this week, mm-hmm. I thought. One, one about Chris Farfoy apparently wanting to, ret- wanting to have left Parliament and just feeling as though he's got too much and isn't coping. And then the other one is a very interesting interview with that by Andrew Little, the, the health minister, who's kind of realised, of not, 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 not any surprise, of course, but it's a very great, it's, you know, he talked the realisation when you pull levers at the top of government, nothing necessarily happens in the DHBs. And it is that sense of Labour Party people with a kind of faith in their own ability to get government moving because they're their kind of people. When push comes to shove, it becomes as, it's just as difficult to do it for them as it is, as it is for anybody else. I think it's a really yeah. interesting moment for the government. Yeah, I mean, the rubber has to hit the road now. There's no excuses. They've got a majority. And uh, what they're coming up against is an entrenched governmental system. Really, it's a, a cultural DNA in government departments, A, to not spend money and to have a sinking, sinking lid constantly over mm. their heads. So they're always reluctant to expand their staff numbers because as soon as there's a change of government, they have to cut them. And and also, you know, 20 years, almost 30 years now of continual cutbacks and sinking lids has meant that a lot of the, you know, the talented and more imaginative and more hard-driving people, I suppose you'd call it, who are used to making things happen and being expensive and being, you know, trying to, they have left, (laughs) they've gone to the private sector or they've gone overseas. And so I talk to quite a few people in the public sector around Wellington who tell me after too many coffees or that third glass of wine that actually the fundamental culture in Wellington is conservative. I don't step out of line don't do something risky that would embarrass your minister. Mm. If that happens, you're not going to get the promotion and you'll be next to go when the, when the lid sinks again. And, and that, tell, me how this is, sorry, tell me how this is playing out in a really important area that you've dealt with this week in your spin-off podcast about immigration. I mean, a friend of ours, Dilipa Fonseca, has done some exceptional reporting on this over the last, really over the last 18 months. I remember we talked about this when I first came back to New Zealand last year, the number of people, for example, on building sites that were clearly, you know, short-term, short-term immigrant visas. The, 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 you know, the number of people who've kept this, helped us keep this economy going for the last 18 months and are being treated pretty, pretty, giving a given pretty a raw deal, I think. Awfully. What, how, does, um, how does that happen? How does that all play out in government policy? Yeah, for the last uh, two and a half years, and for a good 18 months of that, I was working directly with, with Dalipa, essentially as his editor and chief reporter, we did a lot of digging around on what was going wrong within Immigration New Zealand, the uh, problems inside the then Labour New Zealand first government around what they wanted to do with migration, the pressures the government was under from the business sector to open up the taps. And what eventually happened was that the government's reluctance to have a proper debate, have a proper look at what our migration settings were, led it to essentially drift and mm. to allow the numbers coming in to significantly increase. In the short term, it's great for the government's own finances because all of those extra temporary workers are paying income tax and spending money and that flows into GST. 
But of course, the, the indirect effect is the intense pressure on our infrastructure, our hospitals, our roads, our schools, all of but, those But things. now, Bernard, we've got, you know, four and a half percent, under four and a half percent unemployment. We presumably, I mean, I know, I know there are racial differences in, in those employment figures as well. And I've, I've always wondered, with, is, it, is it about satisfying domestic interests that we don't want to make not just a gesture, but actually make, give, give these, give these uh, people who've been here on short-term visas or relatively short-term visas some pathway to citizenship, including their kids? Yeah, uh, there, there is this ambiguity and a lack of confidence in the government's own mind about what it wants. Does it want to restrict migration settings to av avoid having to spend all this money on infrastructure and to take some of the downward pressure off wages at the low end? Or does it want to expand the economy and keep businesses happy and, and retain the confidence of the business sector by allowing lots of workers to come in, both skilled and less skilled? Mm. And it doesn't quite know what to do and it doesn't have a long-term vision about no. what, it, what it wants. There isn't um, an economic, I mean, not necessarily that we, but there isn't an economic policy to cover this area. You know, no. there's, there's a kind of stability policy and there's, and there's, you know, obviously they're getting sidetracked constantly by the housing problems. But this, this area of opting for growth or stasis is not clear to me. Yeah, I, I think the basic problem here is that the government itself, and in fact, most voters haven't worked out that if you want a big New Zealand with a, a lot of diversity and people coming in from all sorts of places and the ability to quickly hire labor and get things moving you also need to spend a lot of money on infrastructure to make yep. sure that that's sustainable in the long run and people are having are wanting to have their cake and eat it too they want the strong growth and the cheap uber eats and the the, the cheap holidays but they don't want to pay the higher taxes for the infrastructure that goes with it and politicians of both sides have encouraged them to continue with that magical thinking because it suits them in the short term. But the problem yeah. is we, right now, COVID has exposed the underlying problem we have here in a most traumatic way, because what it's shown is that we now have over 200,000 people here in New Zealand, trapped in New Zealand, uh, who, who many of whom want to make their lives here and are mm. doing fantastic work building their own communities, in many cases, bringing families, as you suggested earlier. We also have the issue of an aging population in one way mm. to you know, inject a surge of energy and youth and financial strength as a whole bunch of young, keen migrants. Yeah, or, or, or we, and, and possibly we also need to let in a few a few Silicon Valley billionaires. Oh, yeah. Well, one, one, of which we, one of which we discovered story. yesterday was actually a, a permanent resident, which is pretty yeah, amazing. I, I actually entirely support the idea of somebody like Larry Page becoming a New Zealand resident, but it was kind of interesting that it, that it required a crowbar for the government to tell us that. Yeah, well, this is fascinating. This is Peter Thiel all over again. Mm. Same thing. They hoped nobody would notice. <laughs> it's incredible. And uh, we've yet, I haven't had a chance yet to see the proper reporting on it, and no doubt there will be some more. But yeah, Larry Page here is a resident. Part of me thinks, gee, I wonder which, I wonder how he did that. Because there's an awful lot of other people who'd want to be residents too. People have actually yep. lived here and worked here and, you know, cleaned the toilets and milked the cows at four in the morning for years. Literally, there are people here in our aged care sector who are on rolling temporary visas who've been here for more than a decade. Mm -hmm. you know, they've joined the local 
um, bowling club. You know, they've got aunties and uncles who've come to visit them. Some yeah. of them have. Had well, I'm sure Larry. I'm sure Larry Page will join the local bowling club. Probably buy the local bowling That's club. Right. But yeah, I, I don't. I don't. You know, I, I have heard. You know, I, as far as I know, there's a queue of people like him. But it is puzzling that the MB said yesterday, no, 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 he's not a resident, and then minutes later had to say, well, <clears throat> actually, he is. Yeah, and I think this is going to play out quite awkwardly for the government. They they made a big song and dance when they were in opposition about the Peter Thiel citizenship, which was even more extraordinary. Not only did he get residence, he got citizenship, yeah. having been in New Zealand for a total of 12 days over four years or something stupid. Yeah, and of course, given given his libertarian taste, I love that, you know, the the I remember very well his, his statement at the time that no country was more in line with his, you know, ideological views. Yeah, right. <laughs> Gee, thanks. Peter? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. And oh, the other great line, I mean, Peter Thiel, you've got to admire him. He's one of these savant, brilliant, dastardly characters that you know you quite want to hate, but you, in the end, you quite admire him. Yeah, well, I, uh, I reckon we'll have uh, Elon Musk before we know it as well, probably with Grimes, his wife or girlfriend. Ah, all right. Yeah. But well, anyway, that, I don't want to break any news there, I, don't, I don't know, but... <laughs> that would be my, my my next speculation, and of course yeah. we've got Gabe Newell. Gabe Newell, uh, the American um, electronic games billionaire, is here and has been here most of the year. Uh, mm -hmm. Has two of the biggest biggest uh, super yachts in Auckland at the moment, and apparently has been a big helper to Team New Zealand. So, is you know, they're right? not always the that. obvious ones. Yeah, yeah well, I can show you. Story, I can take yeah. you down and show you his two yachts in Auckland. One is he has a super yacht that gets looked after by another super yacht. Yeah, no, that, I yeah. mean, this is a really, I think this has more to play out, this story. Apart from anything else, we should try and keep him here. We should mm -hmm. padlock him to the gates of his mansion in Hoon Bay, I suspect it probably mm -hmm. is. <laughs> and, and make him pay tax on all those Google earnings. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Bernard, when you, do you, do you, have you got a skateboarding dog story? We want to talk about this boy. Oh, who's yes, the, um, yes. Well, boy who's the, 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 the crypt, crypt, cryptocurrency boy. Yes, yes. Uh, but before we jump into our yeah. end of session, fun story or quirky story, thank you to Elaine Diet, um, oh, yeah. who's on the panel, who's, who's makes the point, a very good one, actually, that one of the reasons we're really struggling to, to make up our minds on migration is that we've forgotten how to do big long-term infrastructure to plan for it, to pay for it, and to make it part of the the national plan. And that's because the Ministry of Works used to be there, used to be called Uncle Mo, became very unpopular, of course, during the late Muldoon years because it raced around the country appropriating things to build dams and various other things. And was it was one of the first on the chopping block when the Roger Gnomes took over. And it's one of the problems. We actually don't have the resources in government to do this infrastructure work. And that is a, a great piece from... Uh, Great point from Elaine. Now, the, the skateboarding dog story. I wanted to point, and I will put a, a link in here. In fact, I won't distract you all with the actual link in the chat. But, um, that's a very good idea of putting us in there. Yeah, thanks. Bill. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's that's good. Big, Well, not a big story at all. In fact, it's a small story, but a, one of those sign of the time stories. Not only because of the information involved, but because of the way it went out there. There's an article that I'll put up into the chat page in a minute from Forbes. Now, Forbes is a great name in business publishing, but has built a website based on all sorts of contributors who aren't being paid, effectively using the Forbes name to promote each other and themselves. And I'm afraid it's total crap now, Bernard. 
Yes. <laughs> and when you look at this story, it's about a 16-year-old entrepreneur, he calls himself an entrepreneur, who's inventing a new cryptocurrency called the, let me get this name right, called the, the it's called the Wyco. That's right. It's a new cryptocurrency, the Ycoin. Of course, it's called the Ycoin. Uh, and he is 16, an entrepreneur, he says, who lives in London in Belgrave Street. Turns out, of course, he's part of the Saudi construction family, which is worth billions. And the most beautiful picture that adorns this story, promoting a Yusuf L. is of him. Very effete as a, a 16-year-old. Yeah. Yeah, I'm staring disdainfully down the barrel of the camera in the seat of his private jet while flying yeah. over somewhere. And it, it, just, it just reeks of the sign of the times. Crypto, of course, is full of rat bags and dodginess and the occasional piece of brilliance and is effectively meeting the needs of those people who've stopped believing in fiat currencies, sometimes for good reasons. And, and for a good task of trying to find a much cheaper and more efficient and fairer and less painful way of shifting money around the world, which is uh, crypto and, and, Bit and Bitcoin in particular. And he is up there doing it. Now, of course, um, independently wealthy, just, just reeks of everything that's wrong about the world right now. Mm -hmm. Huge amounts of money printed by central banks to give to people who are already rich to, to then stash away or to give to their sons and daughters to go and, and uh, play with it and, mm. and to try and convince the rest of us that they're doing a good thing by the rest There's of us. There's a very socialist tone coming out in this, Bernard, sometimes. I'm a bit worried about this. Marxist, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> socialist stuff. No wonder Marxist. people think there's a liberal media conspiracy here. Thank God, thank God, I'm, here to, thank God I'm here to offset it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, have a look at it. It's a sort of a fun story. Of course, it's not going to go anywhere, but it's just a, a sign of the time story that I thought one, was One thing I just, I've been thinking about lately, Bernard, actually, and, and again, we could do something on the, on the podcast, all that. Too. I am a Bitcoin and a currency skeptic because I think they're mostly scams, even though I, you know, one would rather be in and out and make a shitload of money on it as you go through. But I think it's also really important that we remember that blockchain is a wonderful, potentially wonderful technology. And I think the media could do a lot more in explaining the, the difference between the two and the places where blockchain is going to, you know, the, the, I remember years ago meeting a, uh, a Peruvian economist who was using blockchain to um, do land titles amongst uh, poor farmers in Peru. And, you know, they had spent decades having their land stolen from them by bigger landowners and so on and they would bribe the local land person and they would you know their documents would be forged and with things like blockchain it makes your entitlement or your 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 ownership of something much 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 harder to to, to fudge and so i think i think at some time we should we should talk about the benefits of, of blockchain possibly with somebody a bit smarter than me to do it yeah no i think you're right there's something in blockchain but uh, cryptocurrency is a uh reserved for uh, money launderers, drug dealers, and scam artists. Although, unfortunately, although is the Kaka going to take is the Kaka going to take Bitcoin as no, no, I, I love the good old New Zealand dollar. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah no, I think no, we should. I'm, I think we should get you taking some some Dogecoin or something. Doge, that's right. Yeah, no, um, no, I'm a, a big skeptic too, and I think it's a matter of time before the world's regulators 
force the banks to disconnect everyone from these horrible exchanges. You only need to look at what's happening in China, where yeah. the government understands the threat and doesn't look around. Those people are in prison. Their uh, racks of servers have been thrown into the river. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those people who've uh, been dealing with these exchanges in China and other, and else, other places are finding their connections to the actual banking system being shut off. Uh, Bernard, somebody's just asked you a question, actually, about what's, because funnily enough, somebody, one of my colleagues at the office said, oh, I see Bernard's going to start charging for the kaka. So somebody in the chat has just said, what is what yeah. is the plan for monetizing the kaka? Well, the situation is that when I left Newsroom just less than a year ago, I agreed not to start any sort of subscription email newsletter that involved asking people for money for a year. And uh, that's what I'm, I'm going to do. So September the 20th is the beginning of the day, mm -hmm. the beginning of the the of, of me turning the paywall on, if you like, for Substack. Substack is very e makes it very easy to, to charge for an email newsletter. And uh, what I'm planning to do is make the dawn choruses, especially for paying subscribers, and then uh, have a once a week email and newsletter that actually connects to this this who this weekly summary of the uh, week's events for those people who would like to get a taste but aren't quite willing to fork over their uh, very precious uh, New Zealand dollars. And we think all, all the good bits are in here anyway, right? Yeah, that's right. You're getting, you're getting the cream of the crop on the Friday afternoon. Uh, uh, so somebody that's asked what kind of, do, do you know what, you, somebody asked Jonathan actually, what, what sort of pricing you're thinking of, but I, I imagine maybe you don't, you don't either Oh, and is there a discounted price for millennials? No, millennials have to pay double, I would say, don't you think? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes, there's one or two boomer-adjacent um, uh, property owners. No, no, I'm going to be very fair and charge the same price to everyone. My current plan at this point is for a price of $19 per month or a once-off $190 per year per subscription and Interesting. everything you, you do, everything I get. Uh, yep. I'm a big fan, uh, Bernard, of uh, Preet Bharara, the podcaster in the United States, who's the former oh, yeah. uh, attorney general for the Southern District of New York. I, I admit I only listen to the free version of this podcast. But one of the things that he, do, he does that may be worth um, thinking about is that he gives discounts to people with a .edu email address. So you might like to say to anybody with, I, don't, I presume the universities have or schools have email addresses with a suffix like that. It might be interesting because I, you know, we've got to find ways to connect, hopefully, to connect um, students and people with you know, the brilliant ideas yeah. that you spout all day long. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. I think there might be some ways with the, the Substack machine in which you can give tokens and coupons, which um, allow us to do that. So I will look, look into that and I'm, I'm looking forward to people's suggestions on things like that. That's, that's yeah. really good. And Should um, we invite anybody else now to Bernard to, for any things before we log off? Yeah, any and just a fin final round, any particular pressing questions that people have on our, our group there of nearly 30? I re really appreciate you you calling in. And But for those who couldn't make it, or your friends and family, this is being recorded and I'll be putting it up as a podcast and a thing later on. What do you think interest rates will look like in 30 years, asks Jonathan. Well, one way in which you can get some sort of wisdom of the crowds on that, what the, the world currently thinks, is to look at the US 30-year government bond yield, which it is possible to check in all sorts of lovely websites. And from memory, off the top of my... 1.25%. It's up, yeah, it's up, so it's 18 point, 18 point 18.63 is the yield. 
Yep. So I'm just having a quick look here at market bonds. Here we go. Here we go. 30-year, 2.38% coupon. There which you is, go. Which is the, the forecast of the, and Bernard is going to remind me when bond prices go up, the yield goes down, correct? That's so that the, the, the forecast interest rate in the United States in 30 years is currently priced at 2.38%. That's right. So that's what the world's most, in theory, incredibly well-connected, well-researched and active investors are saying. If you believe that markets can give you useful information about the future and that the wisdom of the crowd sometimes is better than something else, then that's what you would say, that in the next 30 years, the average U.S short-term interest rate will be around about 2.3%. That, that gives you an idea of uh, where it is. However, if you are really thinking hard about it, then what you look for is the real interest rate. So what are you getting after inflation has done its dirty work? And what that says is that investors are either so scared of the future or have so much money that there's sort of no point in trying to invest it because they can't find anything to invest it in that um, they're quite willing to give that money to the US government <laughs> yeah. um, for 30 years, not have access to it for 30 years, and because they believe that even if they get it back with a, with a negative real return, i.e. they're going to get it back and it's going to be worth less to them in 30 years' time than it is today, <clears throat> even then, that's, that's where they think they're best off with their money. I think that says partly that the world's, Wealth is unevenly distributed into the hands of too few people who are too oh, old. Marxism. Uh, yeah, no, it's true. Who, who have so much money, they don't know how to invest or spend it. Secondly, when you're really rich, and we know this, Peter, when, when you're really rich, your first priority is to preserve the wealth rather than to mm -hmm. grow it even more. And, and so what we've ended up with is, is a, a world system where our money supply is growing because the central banks are printing money. But it's just being stashed away in ever increasing yeah. vaults and not actually being not, not actually doing much. But and Cass, Cass amongst our partners though <coughs> says that surely there'll be alternatives by then, and there are already alternatives to interest rates. I, I, I wondered about saying that myself as a, as an answer to the thirty-year interest rate question. But the fact remains, thirty years is actually not that not that long. You know, it's it's a generation and. The U.S. bond market has survived some pretty big shocks in the last 30 years or the last 110 years or the last 130 years and will continue to do so. So, you know, there may be some other interesting markets develop and, and maybe it'll all be Bitcoin, but I don't think it will. But it's, I, I just think that sometimes we anticipate bigger changes than actually occur over, over that yeah. kind of time frame, which, which is actually an inversion of a Bill Gates saying, which is that we expect change to come much faster and then don't realize how big the change is over time. So I'm actually saying in this case, change may be quite quite small. Yeah, no, the frog boils slowly, but in the government bond market, it just keeps boiling and keeps living. So it's, it's a good good question though. And essentially, the one thing I wanted to sort of get across from this week's action, and there's a big uh, long piece that I've done on Wednesday uh, about sorry, Thursday, about the future of interest rates and what's happening with Reserve Bank here. I point out that there has been close to $30 trillion worth of money printed over the last 13 years, but the pace of circulation of that money has halved during mm. that time as more and more of the money is stashed. It just apart. sucked away, yeah. And I think that's one of the issues. We have, a, ironically, a savings surplus and an investment drought. Interesting. And that, 
But then, shall we shall we close off now? Sorry, yes. I didn't bring you. I didn't mean to bring you to the, to to an early close, as it were. No, no, no. I I really appreciate. It. It's been a fun chat, Peter, and um, looking forward to the day where we can do it in person and clink the glasses, and say thank you very much to all of our supporters and uh, uh, readers at the Car Car. It's been fantastic to have you all uh, in today, and look forward to doing it at, uh, again uh, next Friday at four thirty. Thank thank you very much. Thanks very much. Got it, Peter. See you, Ben. Cheers.